Uh, so here we go. Uh, Matthew, somewhere in Matthew. If you're in Matthew, you're good. Somewhere. We'll be just there. Um, now, if if you were to describe to someone the character and identity of a person, some maybe it was a famous person that they didn't know, a person you know you're describing or relating their quality or character to another, would you necessarily go chronologically? If you were to describe like the character of, say, your best friend to someone who didn't know them, would you start out with, well, they were born in such and such a day, and then <coughs> this is what they got for their first birthday? Um, and even so, like while you talked about the things that made them, you know, good in your eyes, you might mix together aspects like things that they do. Uh, you're not going to necessarily put those in chronological order. You know, whatever hobbies or uh, accomplishments or character traits, you're not going to necessarily put those in any kind of order. Uh, you're, you are going to present your friend in a light that is going to be uh, appropriate for the person you're talking to. Now, say you're describing the same character of that same person and their character to, say, someone who's an enemy who doesn't like them or um, you know, someone who is a child, say, as opposed to an adult. My point is, is that even as your audience changes and what you want to convey about the very same person will change. And this is one of the reasons why the four Gospels are different and also similar. And the three synoptic Gospels are the most similar. John is an outlier and John comes later and it's vastly different than the other. It almost it fills in what the other three don't tell us. But with the three synoptics, synoptic again meaning similar, that these three authors have different audiences and they have different ideas about Christ. Not that he's different, but what they want to convey about him is different, is slightly different. And, and that... Uh, that goal, what they want to portray, is why they have their setup of the life of Christ in like different orders. So just like when, so for instance, well, I'll get there. I'm going to be too long in my intro here. There, uh, you will see similarities in their Gospels, but they won't be in the same order. Um, in some cases, they're word for word identical. And then in other cases, they're not. Uh, and it's because of that very thing. And so that's what we've got to keep in mind. We're, that's why we're not going to study all four Gospels together, because that would muddle the project. We're going to study what Matthew had to say. And by doing that, we're going to want to stick with Matthew's outline and structure so that when we go through the book, that we have this knowledge of what is Matthew really trying to say and to whom. And once we do that, we won't come up with false ideas. And actually, we'll understand the richness of this gospel in a way that we couldn't uh, if we were just reading it as a history, say. 
So let's open up in prayer and thank, be thankful, thankful to our Lord for all that He has done for us. The um, exciting opportunity to start a gospel, and one of the four gospels, just to me, I am so jazzed about this whole project. And uh, we will, um, let's be grateful and thankful for the Word of God, and especially in this gospel. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is all over the pages of your word, most especially in the Gospels that were written to portray him in uh, four different ways, which are not vastly different because, of course, he isn't different, but are showing us aspects of his life that we need to know. You would, if you needed six Gospels written, you would have written them. You gave us exactly what we need to see. And we, therefore, Father, dive into them expectantly, looking to see what you have revealed to us about your Son and about the program of history in which he is the central player. And through him we have life, and in that life we are eternally related to the central player. We are his and he is ours. We're in him and he is in us. This vastly blessed life that you've given us, Father, may we see it for what it is and therefore be so motivated and excited to live it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start in Matthew 4. And uh, we're going to continue this week to summarize. And, And it's not really summary. It's more of because summary would be like, all right, here's the first section, here's the second section. And, you know, uh, you would definitely be asleep in, in a matter of moments. Uh, so, but this is more so the aspect of what is Matthew's structure. And we looked yesterday, uh, yesterday Sunday, at a chiasm. And this was the proposal of actually my professor at Corbin University, Dr. Uh, Gary Derrickson, uh, he was an excellent theologian, and we, I think, you know, if like me, I, I was very moved by it. And even if there's some aspects of it that are, you know, debatable, it certainly shows itself to be a structure, and it helps us to keep us structured. Because again, we don't want to, we don't want to get lost in this gospel because it is large. Uh, we don't want to get lost in thinking, well, we're pursuing a biology of Christ, or sorry, an, an, a, a biography, <laughs> even a biology, because that's in there too. But it's, you know, it's not that, although it includes that. It includes a biography of Christ. Of course, all the Gospels do. But there's a reason why we're not given all of it. And the reason, there's a reason why Matthew handpicks certain parts of it for his purpose. And so we want to know what that purpose is. Um. There are several ways to organize this book, and scholars have done an excellent job at it. Some, of course, go way out of bounds and try some kooky stuff. We're not even going to deal with that. But there are a few, and there are only a few, ways in which you can organize the gospel, even to one that is part one, part two, part three, and that's the simplest. But I'm going to show you that, too, because when you have all of these somewhat organized in your mind, 
when you're reading the gospel, it'll keep you grounded and you'll appreciate the gospel far more. Uh, and I'll show you examples of that. Like I was reading today in, um, about when Christ goes and heals this Canaanite woman, not her, but her daughter. And you know this story. This is where the woman starts screaming for him. And as usual, the disciples are getting uh, aggravated, telling, you know, shut up, lady. <laughs> and Jesus lets her talk. And she says, "I will you heal my daughter? She's demon-possessed. And Jesus' response to her is that I was sent to the children of Israel, not to you. You're a Canaanite. And this, he leaves you know, Israel proper and goes to Tyre and Sidon, which is way over on the Mediterranean coast. This is a, this is a Gentile area. And uh, this woman asked her, he said, I, I'm not sent to the Gentiles, I'm sent to the Jews. And then he said, it's not right to give the, the bread of the children to the dogs. He basically called her a dog. But then she responds, well, don't you even, do you give the scraps to the dogs? The stuff that the kids don't eat, you give that to the dogs, don't you? And he was like, lady, I'm summarizing, you can call her lady, but, you know, um, he's speaking Aramaic anyway, whatever he said. He, he said, lady, your faith is great. Your daughter's healed. Like at that moment. Now, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. But where Matthew put Matthew's the only one who records it. Where Matthew puts it, it's significant. It's so significant that where Matthew actually puts it in his gospel makes that story come alive. There's a reason Jesus left the place of Israel to go to a place of Gentiles. And you see exactly by what was ha what what Matthew narrates before that. We can't say of Matthew, when you're reading these Gospels, you can't say, well, you know, this happened in chapter 11, and that happened in chapter 10, so what happened in chapter 10 happened before chapter 11. Not true. You, you can't say that at all for certain. It's Matthew put it before chapter 11. It might happen after. But Matthew is setting us up. And that's what we have to see. Why is Matthew putting this story that only he includes in this place? And actually, when we see that, it even becomes more alive. And there's principles that we learn that we wouldn't learn otherwise. All right, so today we look at five discourses. Now, obviously, we're going to look at them. We're not going to read them all. We'd be here for a couple of hours if we did. Um, but this is something that was noticed at the very beginning. I mean, way, way back uh, when we have first commentaries on, on things, you know, going back to the second and third century. That, that people obvious, saw this. It's obvious. If you're a scholar studying this gospel you're going to recognize that in five places there is the exact same phraseology. It's, you know, in some cases slightly different, but pretty much exactly the same when Jesus had come to an end of these sayings or Jesus was finished teaching this. And that is at the end, in, end of a long discourse in five different places. So... Um, Again, there's no need to put chronology on these. 
and all the other. Now, these, all these five discourses, this is the end of them. These passages up here are the end of them. In all of these discourses, they're long. They're long discourses. And in the other Gospels, they're not near as long. Uh, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest, and that finishes at 728. So that's the first discourse in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in Luke's Gospel, it is about, a, 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 I'd say about 30% as long. It's roughly in the same order as Matthew puts it, but in Luke chapter 6, it's way shorter. Matthew includes three different things that are, are quite large that Luke doesn't even include. And Mark has like 10% of it. Mark has hardly nothing of it. And so, you know, would it surprise us, and it shouldn't shock us, that it is very likely or possible, we can't know for sure because we'd have to have Matthew here to ask him, that that whole sermon wasn't taught at one time. It could be that you know, 50% of it, 75% of it maybe was taught. Maybe some of it was taught here and some of it there and some of it later on. And what Matthew did was take all of it and put it together because he wants to present something about the kingdom. Because this is the brunt of his gospel. He wants to present the king and the kingdom in that first discourse, which is very long. So we call it a sermon now, famously, it's a Sermon on the Mount. You can't call it anything else now. But it might not have been a sermon. No, we call, it's like an anthology. We take parts and put them together. And that's why I opened with, if you were describing a friend of yours to someone else, you might, you'll take bits and pieces. They're not necessarily in chronological order. But you're going to put them together and present. And that's what's done. So when we try to force chronology on the Gospels. It's often there that we go a bit, we get ourselves caught up in knots. Um, if you've ever tried to read a harmony of the Gospels, uh, they're, they're difficult. Uh, you know, they're not for sure. This is where you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all side by side, and they try to, make, try to put Jesus' life in order. Uh, and it's hard. Actually, it's impossible. Um, and that, this brings us to the thick of the synoptic issue. That's what it's called. It's been debated. Stacks of books have been written about it. And that, you know, for the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why are they similar? Why are they sometimes word for word identical? And at other times, they're not, they're actually quite different. No? Why are they word for word identical? This is something that's been bogging my mind for a little while lately is because did they all get together and we're going to write down the exact same words? I mean, if all hundred of us who are here, <laughs> if all four of us actually heard someone's speech and then, I don't know, a year later you were going to write it down, would we write it word for word identical? You know, probably not. And so this, this brings in all kinds of issues. I think most Christians don't want to think about them, but I am so thoroughly convinced in the inspiration of the Scripture that I'm not afraid to ask the question because there might be an answer in there that is marvelous. And usually those answers are. So uh, the five discourses. 
Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7. Uh, the mission discourse. In Matthew chapter 10, this is where Christ is, sends them out. Uh, they're sent out to witness. They're sent out with the message that the kingdom of God is at hand uh, to all the towns of Israel. But in Matthew 10 is a long discourse. It's the whole chapter uh, on what the missionary is expected should expect to see. And so if you're saying to yourself, well, I can skip chapter 10 because I'm not a missionary. Uh, we're only using the word mission here in terms of a witness. And because Christ sent them out as missionaries, this is the job of all of us, is to be witnesses of Christ. So in Matthew chapter 10 is what you should expect as one who witnesses for Christ to your friends and family and strangers and neighbors and everybody. Uh, Christ said in John chapter 10, if, you're, uh, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, in other words, you're too scared to do it, then there's a situation there. He said, I'll deny you before my Father. So uh, then in chapter 13, which if you remember was the center, which makes sense. Now there's five discourses, so there's a center here. Uh, you could look at this as a chiasm, uh, which is the kingdom parables or the parables of the mystery of the kingdom. And that's in 13. That's the whole chapter there. It's pretty long. Seven parables. Uh, then the greatest. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? This is chapter 18. And again, we're. You know, they're the longest discourses. Chapter 18 isn't all that long. Well, I guess it's pretty long. But if you took the parables out, it'd be pretty short. Um, but anyway, there's the who's, that's how this starts. The disciples say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? This isn't when they're arguing about who's the greatest amongst them. This is they actually go up to Jesus and ask him who's the greatest in the kingdom. And then the Olivet Discourse in 24 through 25. Which is, and we'll see this, of course, that this is where the disciples ask Jesus three questions. Um, he's on the Mount of Olives. They say, hey, behold the temple over here. Look how beautiful it is, Jesus. And he says, there's not one stone going to be upon another. And they ask him, what's the sign of your coming? When are you coming? When is the end of the world? And they ask him those three questions. Now, for us, it turns out that all of these are not about him, really. I mean, in a way they are, but the Sermon on the Mount, who's it for? He addresses it to us. It's, it's addressed to us. You've heard it said, I say to you, these are love your enemies, right? This, this uh, it te teaches how to pray. He teaches us how to pray. Don't be concerned about tomorrow. Don't judge and onward. It's about us. Uh, the... Mission. Well, who's the mission? He's sending them out. And chapter 10 is about us. What we're going to face as witnesses. The parables in chapter 13, they're for us. We're, we're the ones who are heirs of the kingdom, who don't have a kingdom yet. That's what 13 is about. The kingdom's been postponed, but yet the kingdom program goes on. And we're a part of that. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? That actually turns out to be about love. The love of your neighbor, or really your fellow believer. And then the Olivet is about, the, that's the, in the Olivet you have the parable of the ten, you know, uh, 
there's wars and rumors of wars and all of that. And he, he tells us what to look for when they surround Jerusalem, run for the hills. That's there. And he tells the parable of the ten virgins, the steward, the bad steward. And those parables are about us being alert, watchful. So they're for us. Now, wait a minute, right? This is what I'm saying to myself. Gospels are about Jesus. But yet, the main discourses in this are about us. And that makes perfect sense, actually. You don't have to think about it too long. Is that the gospel is written for us. And that we are to know him. But in knowing him through the gospel, we're actually to be of a certain type of person that, and, and know what he has made us to be. You know, here we are. Heirs of the kingdom, this is new. You know, it's brand new that we're heirs of the kingdom and we're not in the kingdom. Heirs of the kingdom and the kingdom's in the future. Heirs of the kingdom, and yet we're called upon to live as if we're in it. All right? We live by its commands, by its rules, by its ways. We walk according to its pattern. And yet, you know, as I was talking to somebody yesterday who was getting all kind of anxious about how things are in this. This is a Christian, and he was getting anxious about uh, and a little upset about how things in the world are going. And, of course, I had Sunday's message fresh on my mind. And I'm like, well, I was like, you do understand that God, that Christ promised that this world would be evil, sinful, and chaotic until he returns. Are you shocked at this? Like, and if, since you shouldn't be shocked, why are you getting so upset about it? Hand your peace over to the wrong kingdom. Maintain your peace in the right kingdom. So, the Sermon on the Mount is about the quality of the disciple. And, and who among us would say the Sermon on the Mount isn't for all Christians? It's not for a particular elite set of Christians. The Sermon on the Mount is for everybody. And, that, and that's been a terrible doctrine that has been perpetrated throughout the church that the Sermon on the Mount is only for Israel in the future. And that is ridiculous. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad thing. Anyway, I won't go there. That would be a soapbox. Uh, the quality is the Sermon on the Mount. Your quality. Your outreach is the mission. Uh, your situation is the way I put it. You're heir of the kingdom, but you're not in the kingdom. So what's your situation? I am blessed beyond my wildest dreams spiritually in my heart and in my relationship to God in heaven, but I am in a visible world of which I may have no blessing at all. It may come, it may go. It's not under my control. I may suffer greatly. Uh, so I have a situation that I should understand. The greatest of the kingdom gets to love, and within that is forgiveness of all believers of all things. And then the last one, the Olivet, is alertness. So notice this. How would this describe a believer if you had the quality of Christ, the outreach of a bold and confident evangelist, a situational awareness where you would be like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, that you loved as Christ loved all your fellow believers and that you were completely alert for the second coming of Christ. What kind of person would you be? You would be a mature believer. Right? So you see the Gospels are not 
solely to display to us what Christ did. That they're not only about His life, they are snippets of His life put together to teach a principle. And once we know that principle, now from that, just knowing that, when you read through the Gospel, or you could just, sometimes, you don't have to read through the whole thing chronologically. I I highly recommend you do. By the time, you're going to have a good, I don't know how long this is going to take, but it's going to take a long time, so. But if you just picked out a chapter and you knew, like, here I am in Matthew 7. Where am I? Sermon on the Mount. What is it about? I know. Where does it fit into Matthew's Gospel? If you knew this, in a few minutes you could ground yourself into what this is. And then you wouldn't, you'd see it in a richer way. And then you could just sit and enjoy it. Now just read it through and enjoy it. Now, of course... These five discourses are not the whole gospel. Uh, they're a small portion of it. Surrounding each gospel is a narrative. All right, so there's going to be something happening before Jesus launches into. Right, and again, I have to be careful of chronology. It might not be before, but Matthew is going to present a situation of which the teaching that Jesus is going to give is absolutely relevant. Again, Matthew's writing to Jews to convince, and he's writing to Jews somewhere around 60 A.D. to, you know, there are plenty of Jewish Christians around. There are also Jews who have rejected Christ and are very angry at the Jews that have believed in him. So there's a conflict there. And there's also um, a lot of Gentiles that are really starting to come into the church. By 60, the Gentile population of the church is probably starting to outnumber the Jewish population. Remember, when the church started, it was all Jewish. So, um, you know, this, this is the audience that Matthew is after. Unbelieving Jews who are seeing Gentiles going to this church. And how do Jews view Gentiles in that age? Uh, the, the lowest of the low, they're disgusting. They have nothing to do with them. And, uh, and also, he's writing to Jews who have seen, likely, they know some Jew has become a believer. And to those unbelieving Jews, they have committed the ultimate blasphemy against Moses. So, you know, that's his audience. He's a brave soul for going after them, <laughs> to say the least. So when he's gonna when he puts together these discourses, Matthew is going to preamble them with a narrative or a situation, and every one of them has one. So each discourse is surrounded by narratives that portray a situation or situations in which the teaching is relevant. And what was exciting for me is that I, I was able to just you know, knowing this to be true, I was able to read the gospel and just see them. And you'll see them if you read through the gospel with this in mind. When you come to, say, uh, chapter 5 through 7, which is the first one we look at, which is the Sermon on the Mount, well, what's right before it and what's right after it? And see if it relates. And it's an exciting way to read the gospel. So again, each discourse is surrounded by narratives. So if you go to Matthew 4, 17, 
You look prior to that, Matthew 4, 1 and following is Jesus' temptation. He gets baptized in chapter 3. These are all displaying him as the king and the Messiah. And then he gets tempted by the devil. And once he passes that test, he starts his ministry. But where does he start his ministry? You know, Matthew is very clear about this. If you look at verses 12 through 16, you see a block of text there that is a prophecy. Right? We looked at this prophecy not too long ago. It's from Isaiah chapter 9. And it is, you see it there? It is what? That there's going to be a light, a light that is going to shine in a dark place. But where does it shine? And it shines, as Matthew points out, in Galilee. So uh, the fact that this light shines in Galilee, and this is going to be another thing we'll tackle before we start Matthew 1.1, is how Matthew emphasizes Gentiles. And say, well, wait wait a minute, you're saying he's emphasizing Galilee. But yeah, Galilee is not 100% Jewish. It, there's quite a bit of Gentile activity or Gentile people. And, uh, and the, also, the people in the south who was Judea around Jerusalem, they view themselves as the pure Jews. And the people up north, you know, they're past Samaria and Samaritans or mixed blood people. They view the people of Galilee as country, bumpkin. You know, they're not really Jews, they, even though they're Jews. But they're not like us, like we're the purebreds. We're the, you know, the blue, uh, the white collar. They're the blue collar or some kind of thing. And, um, and yet Matthew, right at the start of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4, this is not a mistake. He's the only one who quotes Isaiah 9. This prophecy is, there's a light going to come into the world, but it's not going to Jerusalem. It's going to Galilee. It's going to Nazareth. <laughs> and, you know, this is, where is this? Right at the start. And so before the Sermon on the Mount, or I'll call it the Sermon Discourse, we have the ministry of Christ beginning in Galilee. Look at Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is this? This is the prophecy of the light in Galilee. That prophecy finishes in verse 16. And then we have Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as you continue to read on, you get to verse 23. And again, I'm only doing this for the sake of time, uh, but we would naturally read through it all. But in verse 23, Jesus was going about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Everybody healed by the thousands. Large crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis. Decapolis is Gentile and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Now, Matthew's not going to show Jesus going to Judea until the very end, but there's a hint here. He's, only John tells us when Jesus, all the times Jesus goes to Galilee. I, I'm sorry, to Jerusalem. But anyway, that's a side note. So before, you know, what's the, this first sermon? The Sermon on the Mount is about the quality of the disciple 
And right before that, he starts his ministry in Galilee as to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, and he heals and heals and heals. He has a huge following now. And this huge following is for, well, this guy could be, right? He could be. Right? Don't say it. <laughs> but he could be. Is this the Messiah? And anyway, they're following him and following him. And then, blessed are the poor. What? <laughs> blessed are you when people persecute you. Uh, wait, 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 wait. The Messiah brings victory. The Messiah brings military might to just destroy. He makes us prosperous, not poor. Right? Do you see blessed are the poor in the prophecies about the millennial reign? The millennial reign is magnificent. Come to my table, God says. My table is full and waiting for you. Flowing wine. I mean, there's so much wine flowing in the millennial kingdom that it's, they, they describe it, Isaiah does, as running down the hills. And that, that's not for the drunkards. <laughs> and, you know, wine was a, a depiction of prosperity in the ancient world. And, yeah, wait, blessed are who now? So you can see this, that this is set up, is set up so wonderfully by Matthew. This quality of the disciple. Now, afterwards, after this, in chapter 8, he heals a leper, and then he tells him to go to Jerusalem and tell the priests that he's been healed. Now, it turns out, as Matthew puts this in chapter 8, this is right after the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus tells this leper to go to Israel, go to Jerusalem, and report to the priests that you've been healed of leprosy. So we say, so what? Not one leper in Israel has ever been healed. Ever. There's entire chapters in the Mosaic Law about healing of lepers. In other words, if you are healed, the priest has to go through all of these checks, which take seven days to do. And Jesus says, go report yourself. It's the first time in all of Jewish history that those texts in, in the law of Moses are actually used to test out and confirm that a leper is healed. And they're going to say, and, and by the way, if you were a leper, you, a, a record was kept, kept of you. So this man, they're going to know, he was a leper, and who healed you of your leprosy? This guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Right? They even say this. No prophet comes out of Nazareth. Why would the Messiah come from a backwater town where he has this funny accent? You know, he talked differently than they did in Jerusalem. We were talking about it on the Zoom meeting yesterday. Jesus in speaking in Jerusalem would be like somebody from Houston, Texas talking in New York City with his Texas drawl. Everybody would know you're not from New York. Because the Galileans had a certain accent. It's amazing stuff. So when he tells the leper to go report to the priests, the leper becomes an evangelist. So after Jesus teaches the quality 
of the disciple in the Sermon on the Mount. He sends a leper down to Jerusalem and really to tell the priests that the Messiah is here. Then, right after that, in Matthew's Gospel, doesn't have to be chronological, that's where we find the centurion who Jesus said had more faith than anybody in Israel. And it's going to become a running theme because Matthew is writing to Jews who are, who are going to respond to him. If you're saying this Jesus guy is the Messiah, okay, fine, where's his kingdom? And the, a huge brunt of Matthew's gospel is going to be, well, the kingdom was postponed because you rejected him. You said no. Now, it doesn't mean that the kingdom is taken away from you forever. It's just postponed. And you can be a part of it. As a Jew who rejected Christ, by faith in him, you will become a part of the church. And yes, the church is filled with Gentiles. I mean, th- this whole plan that God has devised, <laughs> you know, to put us, and you're, you and I are in this age, it's been going on for 2,000 years, that heirs of the kingdom, but the kingdom's not here. Heirs of the kingdom, we have the blessings of the kingdom, but the kingdom's not here. We have these discourses that tell us what a member of the kingdom is like, how we evangelize, how we love one another, and how we, you know, and that's a part of our evangelization is our love for one another. It's truly wonderful. All of us should be super excited about our lives here, that we've been given this life and that we're in fact the only group of people in all of history who are heirs of the kingdom that ain't in the kingdom. To be blessed with the new covenant in his blood and yet not be in the kingdom. It's, it's like, um, I don't know. I mean, some people describe you like you're behind enemy lines. But it's not even that. It's something different. It's, a, it's this incredible blessing in a dark place of wit, your incredibly blessed life is to be a light to the world and therefore you capture others for the kingdom of God because you're a witnesser. And it sounds wicked easy. <laughs> That's the next one. I'm seeing by my time I'm not going to get through them all, which is fine. We'll, uh, we'll make sure we uh, that'll give me... Uh, Plenty of stuff for tomorrow. So, Matthew 10. Well, actually, you're going to go to Matthew 8. It turns out that we're not going to read any of these discourses today. We're just going to read the stuff that's around them. So, you already have a, perhaps, because I, I think, you know, we all have done, we've done the Sermon on the Mount a few times. <clears throat> certainly referenced it a few times, uh, many times. And so you have, you know, this beginning of the gospel. I'm excited even. I'm working on the genealogy right now. Matthew opens with a genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. And, uh, uh, and there's fruitful stuff to know in that. Yeah, here we go with blah, 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 begat, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, man, this has got to be the worst <clears throat> and there's such truth in it. It's it's wonderful. Anyway, um, and we have his baptism. We have his birth. 
His baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, he goes to Galilee and starts his ministry, Sermon on the Mount. All right? That takes you all the way to chapter 7. Now, you get this in your mind, and then you know, well, all right, Matthew has a plan here, and this, this plan, the first discourse is Sermon on the Mount, quality of the believer. Uh, and we'll return to the chiasm again. And when we put these two together, with there's one other that we'll look at. It's super simple. It's, Matthew has three parts. It's, it's wonderfully simple. Um, <clears throat> that we'll be able to, in all of these passages, be able to orient ourselves to where we are. And then have mar- far more fruitful reading when we do. All right. So if Matthew 10 is the next discourse... And this is about missions. This is about he's going to send them out and they're going to be missionaries. Right? So why don't we can go there. Because I know you're, you're itching too. I think we'll, we'll stop with this one. <clears throat> so he saw in verse 10.1, he summoned the 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out uh, and to heal. And then we get the 12 disciples, they're named. And he says, the twelve, these 12 Jesus sent out in verse 5 after instructing them. All right, so they're sent out. <coughs> and you probably know it. You know, they're going to get to heal and do miracles. And then, you know, if they're received in a house, awesome. If they're not received, just go. Uh, this brush the dust off your feet is an idiom for saying, you know, you're, you're fine and clear. Just leave there. Cut your ties with it. And then, as he continues, uh, say like for verse 16, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And by the way, that means we're supposed to use our brains because these are not, this is the 12 being sent out. But now there's 13, 14, 10,000, 10 million <laughs> All of us are in this chapter. All of us in our witnessing for the Lord to the world is here. And what we're going to face is, behold, I send you out as sheep, not to Disneyland, but amongst the wolves. It's not going to be easy for you. Doesn't that sound harsh? So he says in verse 17, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And on he goes. All the way to the end. And look at 11.1. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions. You see that? So there's the end. That same phrase happens at the end of 7. 11.1 here. And I got them on the board for you. I'll put them back. <clears throat> at the end of 13, at the end of 18, and then at the end of 24 and 25. Same phrase. So these five discourses, you see how long it is. It's a long sermon, if it is given all at once. Matthew puts these markers in here. And these markers are, Jesus is done talking now. And so, and he gives us these five. Now, this is about us being sent out as missions. Now, before this, go to 8, 
It's so wonderful. You know, with this in mind, I read this and I'm like, how have I read this so many times and missed this? Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of, the, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Allow the, bur- allow the dead to bury their own dead. <clears throat> what do these guys have? It's expanded more in the other Gospels. Permit me to go bury my father. Permit me to go prove a piece of land. Permit me to go do this and then I'll follow you. Jesus in not one case said, oh, okay, sure, go. He said, no, follow me now. Now. What do they have? Excuses. To follow Him is to be that witness, that mission who's going to be sent out. You see, the twelve followed Him and what did they get in return? What what do we have for you now? Now that you've said you're going to follow Christ no matter what. Okay, what are you going to get? I'm going to send you out as sheep amongst the wolves. What? (laughs) What? The others have excuses. See, Matthew is setting up the excuse before he gets to the missions. But this continues in verse 23. Now notice, they did not, he said, follow me. And then in verse 23, he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. This is no mistake. Matthew's using the same words to tell us. And when they got into the boat, what happened? And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep, and they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. The way that they say say this, the Greek actually brings out a bit. I can barely remember this from some past lesson. But they're almost saying, like, aren't you concerned for us? We're perishing over here. Jesus is fast asleep. So the people who follow him get what? Stormy seas. The people who didn't follow him are nice and safe on the land, nice and dry, and unafraid. They're nice, comfy in their beds. But the ones who followed him find themselves in the middle of the sea uh, feeling like, yeah, we're about to die here. And Jesus is asleep. Why are you afraid, he says in verse 26, you men of little faith? But, oh, this is great. They fought, They have little faith, right? But they followed Him. They don't have a lot of faith, but they followed Him. They find themselves in a situation where their faith is tested. Then He got up and rebuked the winds and the sea. It became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey Him? Go to Matthew 9.9. 9. Jesus went on from there. and he, This is the whole... And Matthew's... You know, do you think Matthew was there? <laughs> he called a man... He called a man... He's sorry. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
Why doesn't Matthew give us some detail here? In the chosen, they filled in the detail. I think they did a marvelous job with it, but of course it's all conjecture. But um, why? Because Matthew wants his Jewish readers to know, and by the way, Matthew's writing to the Jewish readers with a thought in mind, but God the Holy Spirit is inspiring that thought, and God fully knows that all of these Gospels are going to be given to the world. Of course he knows that. And there's another thing that God knows. God knows that we're all going to go over them with a fine-tooth comb. And God knows that as well. You see, if I'm the if I'm got Matthew's original gospel in my hands and I read it through, I'm a first-time reader. That's one thing, but you and I could never be that. That's long gone. We don't have the originals. We could never even the first time we read it, we don't read it as those to whom it was written. But later on, we figure out it is written to us. And later on, we start to, as we study these Gospels, we look at them line by line. Has anybody ever looked at a letter you've written like that? Right? (laughs) Why would they, right? Nobody has done that to us. But to these, God knew we would. And therefore, God set these up, not only for Matthew's audience, but for us. We just saw these people made all these excuses that they couldn't follow Jesus. Then they follow Him into the boat. And in the boat, they get nothing but trouble. They feel they're going to die. And they had little faith. Yet, they followed Him. What does Matthew do here? It's all we know about him when he's called. I followed Him. He could have filled in all kinds of details if he wanted to. He didn't want to. All I want you to know is I followed Him. You know what you need to do? Don't think about it. Don't sit there saying, well, you know, this might happen and that might. Don't think about it. Just go. Just follow. And then you get to chapter 10. So, right, so this is all they followed him. These didn't follow him. Those did follow him. Matthew followed him. I, meaning the writer, I followed him. And then you come to chapter 10. And what do we have that we just read it? The trouble of the witnesser. I'm now that you've followed me, guess what's gonna happen? I'm gonna send you out. Uh wait, that's not following you. You want me to go out on my own now? Yes. Now that you've followed me, I'm going to send you out. And as I send you out, you're gonna face trouble. Now what happens after ten? Again, in the narrative here. First off, John the Baptist is displayed as the greatest prophet. What was John? John was the forerunner to Christ. John was an evangelist. He's a baptizer, yeah, but he was the one who proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He sent ahead of the Messiah to prepare Israel. And Jesus said he's the greatest of the prophets. So Matthew has here, after... Those who followed Christ get sent out as witnesses. Now Matthew presents to us the greatest witnesser, who was John the Baptist. By the words of Christ himself, no man born from a woman greater than John. But then, and here's where, and this is a good place to break it, in Matthew 11, 16. 
And this is a big part of Matthew's Gospel, is that Israel rejected their Messiah, and that's why the kingdom is postponed. Matthew 11:16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. Now, all this is saying is that we called out to you with a joyful song, but you wouldn't dance. We called out to you with a sad song, and you wouldn't cry. What does that mean? It means no matter what we said, you would not respond. So he says, John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. John's more like the dirge. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is the flute, the joyful song. And yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, your response to the truth is either going to be wisdom or it's not. And so what we have here first is in chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, the first big discourse, it's the biggest, is that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, prophesied to be a great light in Galilee, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And then he speaks of the quality of the member of the kingdom of God. While they saw his miracles and followed him because of great miracles and all the things that he did, What Jesus really presented was that the member of the kingdom of God is not one to whom all things work out miraculously. I'm showing you miracles to show you who I am and who my power is. But the members of the kingdom of God are those who follow my my word. And that word is love, sacrifice, poverty, trusting in the Lord, seeking after righteousness, not miracles. This quality, you hear these words of mine and act upon them, you're the house built upon the rock. That's how he finishes it. It's, and, and so from that comes what a disciple is. The next discourse is in chapter 10, what a disciple says. So in chapters 5, 6, and 7, what a disciple is. Chapter 10, what a disciple says uh, as a witness. Now, as one who is witnessing, what are you going to experience? You're the sheep, and you're surrounded by wolves. It ain't going to be easy. Prior to this, we have those with excuses. We also have those who didn't come up with excuses, but actually followed them. And what did they find? Tough stuff. Disaster at sea. Uh, All kinds of problems. And then after that, we find, as Matthew would continue to present throughout his gospel, that Israel herself and her majority did not respond to any of these discourses. This is the type of, this is the type of disciple in my kingdom. They didn't do that. This is what I do to those who follow me. I send them out. They didn't follow him. We sang you the fun song, you didn't listen. We sang you the sad song, you didn't listen. Wisdom will always respond. 
And now that brings us to the center of the gospel, which is so we have the type of disciple they said no. What the disciple says and does, they said no. And then your kingdom is going to be postponed. It's taken from you. I'm taking it. I'm not going to give it to you. And not to this generation. I'm not taking it from Israel. It's from this generation. I am not going to give you this kingdom. It's going to be postponed. And I'm going to tell you now what is going to happen between the time of now and the time that I come back. There's a kingdom program going on. But what is going to happen now until I come back, no one has ever known. And... This is all Matthew's Gospel. It's fantastic. Let's close the prayer. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone have the plans of eternity, the plans of time. That you, Father, are with us and always with us, teaching us, revealing to us. After so many years of learning your word, we could still be excited by the truth of it. The things that we have missed so many times over. But you patiently wait for us to open our eyes so that you can teach us. And thank you, Father, for your patience and your love. May we have it for one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.